so when we when we go to sleep, it's like we're drifting. So the boat's just sitting there, you know, kind of drifting. But if the weather's really bad and there's, you know, 30-foot seas, you got to have someone in the wheelhouse driving. It's called jogging. So you'll be going from waypoint to waypoint, uh, you know, going about three knots back and forth because you got to keep the boat moving. If if you're drifting in 30-foot seas, you're going to be going all over the place. The boat's going to be turning. It's going to be in the trough, rocking back and forth. The mass is going to be hitting waves. It's It's not a good scenario. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. I just want to take a second and tell you guys thank you for writing all these reviews. They've just been fantastic. And I really appreciate you taking that time. It's the best way to get this podcast to grow and get in front of more people. And I'm going to read you one real quick. The podcast is loaded with info, but balanced with perspective. The magic that I see and hear is that character is paramount. So many podcasts are filling time and meeting deadlines, being accountable to their sponsors and following trends. Not here. The character that shines through is evidence of a life lived, a lifestyle that honors effectiveness and is more important than anything. If you want to experience life and see the true color of why the West has such a draw, be patient, listen, absorb, and feel the picture that can only be painted by someone that truly lives and loves this area in the outdoors. This is not a fashion statement or a trend. This is his life. It shows in each episode. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you guys. And if you haven't taken the time to leave a review, I would really appreciate it if you could. It's a little bit challenging. You just scroll down to the bottom of you know your Apple iTunes podcast app and uh, leave something in there for me. Again, appreciate it very much. And uh, here's your episode. So I'm sitting here with Lars Skovlin, my little brother who just got back from his first crabbing season in the Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska. Something that we've all watched on TV, like we've all watched The Deadliest Catch. It's interesting. We know it's a very dangerous job. Um, The paychecks can be good um, or they can be absolutely nothing. And we know that the greenhorns on the cruise have 
the worst of all of it, right? Because you don't really know what you're doing. Um, you're going to get the the tasks that nobody else wants to have, but you crush it. You did a great job and you just got home. You've got all these interesting stories and I can't wait to hear about it. So let's start off. Um, tell me about the boat that you're on. Yeah. Thanks, James. So uh, the boat I was working on is a 138-foot crab boat. It was uh, pretty outfitted for what we were doing. You know, it had everything you needed. Um, you know, like all boats, though, they could all use a little bit of help. So that's what I was there for. So the, fir- the first task that you had was actually tearing apart the engines, right? Yeah. So we had to pull off the heads on the 3412 cat engines and What is a 3412 cat engine? The 3412 is a classic cat engine, uh, super reliable. You know, they, they've went down as, you know, bus engines. Uh, they just, they keep going. They don't break down. So that's why we want to have them on board, you know, because when we're out there for 30 days, you want to have something reliable. So you'll be out for 30 days without coming in for fuel or food or anything? Yeah, it kind of depends on what we're catching out there. We had one trip that was 31 days, uh, but ideally you want to be gone for no later than two weeks. So what's your fuel capacity like? So the Lady Alaska's fuel capacity is about 17,000 gallons of diesel, and uh, it takes about two hours with uh, two different fuel pumps running to get it filled. That's an expensive fuel bill. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, and how many pots did you carry? So we try to carry around like 250 Okay. at a time. And but how much does a crab pot weigh? So the six and a half by pots are about 850 pounds. So that's over 200,000 pounds of just crab pots that are stacked on the deck. Yep. So yeah, if they're 900 pounds, it'd be, uh, 225,000 pounds of crab pots. Yeah, it's a lot of iron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a couple of cranes on the boat to move those things around? Yeah, so the main crane we had, it's uh, just like a hydraulic boom uh, operated by uh, hydraulic levers. You got your hydro guys running it. We also have a remote hydraulic operation pack. Okay. So you can run the hydros, you know, with a remote gotcha. uh, device. And then how much crab can you carry in your holds? So our boat could hold about 325,000 pounds of crab in three different live holding tanks. And you have to keep them alive. Yep, that's the goal. So when you get the crabs on board, you know, you're sorting them to the table and you got to get them in the hopper like ASAP or else they'll start breaking legs or they're dying. You know, if, if the crab sits outside of water for more than like 30 minutes you don't want to put them in the tank so okay so you're you're moving everything's got to happen fast but got to happen safe too it's all about speed but yeah safety is definitely the number one so tell me a little bit about the Bering Sea um I'm I'm doing some research on it right now especially on the Bering Land Bridge uh and I think it's a fascinating area. The Aleutian Island chain is is really interesting. I don't think many people understand just how far out the Aleutians go from mainland Alaska. So when you take off from Kodiak, how far does it take? How long does it take you to get to Unalaska? 
So it took us about a three-day steam to get there. Three days nonstop to get to the end of the Aleutians. Yep, going nine knots. Going nine knots. Wow. Slow as hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's slow, but it's a lot of weight. That's yeah. right. But yeah, weight. there's a lot of nice mountain scenery to look at on your way by there. Did you do much of that standing on deck and, and looking, or were you busy cleaning stuff, or was that your time to, to sleep a little bit? Oh, yeah. We had just got done doing like two weeks of gear work, so we are all sleeping, catching up there, but you know, eating, getting ready for the colossal amount of work that we were about to do. How was the food on the boat? Oh, we ate pretty good. Honestly, like we would pack up for a trip and, you know, we overpacked food by a lot. So we had plenty of food, you know, we'd eat really nice meals, ribs, potatoes. We got frozen veggies were like a staple, you know, we'd throw those in and got to get all your nutrients in when you're working that hard. Who cooked? So we had a guy cooking, uh, who's a really good deckhand. His name was James. Mm-hmm. And uh, did did he clean as well, or was that on all you guys to to pitch in and help with that? Yeah, so uh, typically when you end a crab trip, everyone goes and cleans the house. And when you're done cleaning the house, you go outside and you have to clean the bait area and, you know, scrub the deck, scrub all the boards. It's, you know, it's a... Uh, they really want everything clean just because, you know, you don't want stinky fish on your deck when you're in port. That's just, nobody yeah. wants that. Well, a clean boat is a happy boat and a happy boat catches fish. You're damn yeah. right. And uh clean, uh, there's no such thing as, as too clean when it comes to a boat. You can work on it forever and always find something that could use a little bit more love. Always something to do on a boat. Always something to do. So what are some some tasks that you would do, you know, if you, for some reason, had some downtime? Like, what's the one thing that you would go and attack and work on? I'd make a knife belt, honestly. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd, I'd spend time wrapping up my knife belt. I had a customized, you know, it was like a hydraulic hose pouch wrapped in a paracord. Mm-hmm. And was your knife for cutting bait? Uh, no, it's like a safety knife. So okay. if you get a line wrapped around you, or if you're trying to cut a line off someone else, yeah. if it's wrapped around them, you got to be there ASAP to cut it. Pretty important to know where you're standing to make sure you don't have a, a loop of rope around your foot. Yeah. The number one thing when you're setting gear is you have to watch where your feet are and you cannot lift your feet up at all. You keep your feet flat on the deck and you shuffle. Okay side shuffle that probably helps with balance with that boat pitching and rolling too oh yeah yeah that that's a whole other story right there (laughs) what's the story oh well the boat moves quite a bit and you know i've talked to other deckhands about specifically how the lady alaska rolls compared to other boats so the boat shape has almost everything to do with how it rolls Mm -hmm. Uh, you know a lot of boats are have a lot more curvature to them. Um, but yeah, the, the bottom of the boat is what nobody really sees and it's way underwater. It's like a straight edge and goes way down there. And that has everything to do with how it rolls. And the roll of the boat is basically key to learning like how to move on deck because you don't want to be fighting the roll of the boat cause you're working an uphill battle. 
you want to be fighting a downhill battle. Okay. So the role of the boat's a blessing and a curse and you have to learn to harness it. Honestly, you know, if you got to push a pot across the deck, you know, like 80 feet, you're not going to want to be pushing it uphill. Sure. You want to be pushing it downhill. Yeah. So you got to wait for that roll. And as soon as it comes up, you got to use all your momentum. Go for it. Okay. I'm sure there's just an endless number of things like that that you you learn about. Because, like, these aren't skills that you possess in, in really any other job, right? Certainly not down here in Oregon. Yeah, totally unique to the scenario. I can't really think of anything else it would compare to. But, yeah, like, the amount of skills that I picked up in the last four months was amazing. I, I had no idea that it was going to be like it was, you know, and, and just learning all the, the deck operations is honestly my favorite part. How big is the Bering Sea? So the Bering Sea covers about 2 million square kilometers and it's in the Northern Pacific, uh, basically in between Russia and Alaska. And is it, is it flat on the bottom or are there ridges or there canyons? What's the topography of the, of the bottom of that ocean look like? It's it's rugged down there, and that's why the crabs like to be there because they like the canyons. Okay, so what are what are those? We call them submarine canyons. Um, so are you targeting those canyons in a similar way that you would target a canyon if you're looking for elk out here? Yeah, I I could actually compare it to that. Yeah, standing on top of ridges, glassing down at elk. So what kind of uh, electronic equipment on the boat are you using to figure out where crabs are? So we had an array of technology at our hands to use on, on the boat. So when you're on wheelhouse watch, you're always checking your monitors, you know, checking the depth, checking the map. So we have a pretty elaborate map system on the boat. Okay. Um, so we use time zero navigation it's a application uh, that you can get for fishing. It's really mm-hmm. helpful. Uh, you can put in waypoints. You can look at the topography. And uh, so when you're fishing, like, you want to set your gear off at, like, the top of the ridges. Okay. Because the, the scent of the bait, like, carries down into the canyons. So the current, you know, it pushes that scent down, and that's when the crabs start crawling up and finding it how long were the pots soaking before you're picking them up yeah soak time is a a very debatable topic a lot of people say you should soak pots for eight hours people say you should soak pots for 48 hours it it all kind of depends on the scenario so it depends on what you're fishing to for um so you started out fishing for opelia yeah so we started fishing opie's uh, first trip I went on and, uh, basically opilio crab are a smaller crab. It's, you know, it's not as desirable as red king crab mm-hmm. on the market. Um, it's, it's like a cheaper version of crab. Um, but you can just catch mass amounts Okay, is, is why, you know, people are drawn to the fishery. Nice. Well, if you're selling crab by the pound, you need to catch pounds of crab. Yep, you got to catch a lot. So, would you fill up, you know, your um, three hundred forty-five thousand pound hold with Ophelia? 
Yeah, that's the goal. Um, the first trip, we actually did really well. And we were out of there, you know, just after two and a half weeks. We got all of our tanks full, which is a freaking project. And we were out there hauling probably 90 pots a day. Wow. And, you know, on that first trip we had, we were pulling in about 400 keepers a pot, which is, like, unheard of. That's cool. Well, it sounds like the fishery's fairly well managed. I know uh, the state of Alaska is, is concerned about making sure that that fishery stays sustainable. Yeah, let's talk about that. Before 2002, the crab fishing industry was a lot different than it was now. Uh, basically, they, they referred to it as the derby days. Mm -hmm. And so they'd have a season opener and all the boats in the fleet would go out and catch as many crab as they can. And it was a race to get to him, you know, lots of co competition. And uh, then they'd close the, the season and be done. And so after 2002, they came out with a quota system. And so the quota is basically you are allotted a certain amount of crab pounds to catch for your vessel. And it's consistent every year. So say you bought 400,000 pounds of OPs one year you'd, you know, fish that every year. And, you know, some boats, they have like a lot more quota and they can't catch it all. So they'll lease it out to another boat. So basically what that did to the, the crab fleet is there was a lot less boats going out to fish. Okay. So there was, you know, 250 boats to start with. They cut it down to 75 and they're rotating out, taking turns to fish. And basically the idea behind the quota system was to make it easier on deckhands for one. Uh, the other goal that they had was to just save the fishery, you know, make it more sustainable. Sure. Um, and that's been debatable, um, the actual goals for the quota system. But So what are the sides of that argument? Well, mostly the quota, it seems to be about you know, money and, and who has the most money, who can buy the most quota and quota gets, you know, bought out and, you know, it's, it just changes it. It changes the whole dynamic of all the fishing boats, you know, because some are fishing a lot more than others. Some are just sitting there in the port, not fishing. Probably favors the, the bigger boats too. That's right. So the smaller operations, you know, might, might really struggle with that. Yeah, and uh, when they start leasing the quota out, uh, they give a percentage to the boat that's catching the quota. Okay. So, you know, they're not getting as much as they were, you know, back before 2002. So are they buying that quota from the state of Alaska? Yeah, it's basically like a, a government system where there's a, a set amount of quota and, and you can't you know, go over that, you know, the, the fish and game department has a set number and it's divided up between all the boats, but that number is, you know, like I said, traded, sold, leased out to different boats. Hmm. Interesting. Well, talk to me a little bit about a little bit more about how you catch these things. Like what are you using for bait? I'm sure bait was a, was a big part of, of your life as a deckhand, as a greenhorn deckhand. Oh Yeah. I was all about the bait, so that was my job. So I would go out there an hour before every string, and I'd make bait setups. Okay. So 
we were chopping herring up. So we'd pull a box of herring out of the freezer and drop it in the bait chopper, chop a bunch of bait, and we'd stuff it into these drawstring bags. Okay. And then we catch cod too. So we have, you know, a certain percentage of cod pots on board. And we'd set those cod pots off in a string of about 10. And so when anytime we need bait, we'd go check those cod pots, pull up some cod, store them away. And that was my job. I'd go and cut up the cod for bait. And so every pot gets about five pounds of chopped herring in a drawstring bag. And then that bag has a, a line on it with a clip and it goes to two cod, you know, weighing about up to 45 pounds. Uh, you want to have that cod in there so that it gives the crab something to do. Okay. Uh, when they get in there, cause you know, they'll, they'll start crawling out if there's nothing, you know, cause they can't get into that bag. They can't eat any of the herring. They just smell it. Okay. There's like an oil content in the bait that attracts them to the pot. And is there anything else that you would mix into it? Um, yeah. So we had squid in our freezer just in case, uh, we ran into sand fleas. Okay. And so when you get into sand fleas, you have to start using squid because it has less oil content. Mm -hmm. And so basically what sand fleas are is they're these micro crustacean sea creatures that will pick a carcass, like a fish carcass clean in seconds. Really? They come in hordes of thousands like vultures <laughs> like little piranhas <laughs> down there oh yeah and they just they just chomp all the bait and just turn it into a carcass and you'll pull up a pot and you know take off the bait clip and there's like a fish skeleton hanging there and no crab because hmm. they ate all the bait like so you got to bait heavy in those scenarios okay well, I'm sure that's a bummer when you pull up a first pot in a string and the sand fleas have wrecked it because that means there's less less scent in the water to attract crab in there, right? Yeah, that's when you know you got to pick up the string and haul it somewhere else. Okay. And are you kicking out all 250 pots every time? So when we start a trip, we'll have you know all our pots stacked on deck and we'll go out there and find a spot where we think there's good fishing. And we'll drop a string here, we'll drop a string there, and we'll keep setting pots until our deck is empty. And then we go back to the first string that we set. You know, it's probably been soaking for 24 hours at that point. Okay, gotcha. Um, so a 24-hour soak is kind of the standard for, for what you guys did? Yeah, a 24-hour soak is a solid amount of time to have there. I've seen eight-hour soaks produce you know huge amounts of crab for you know when we we're fishing bear dye you know short soaks were the name of the game i'd never even heard of bear dye before so what what are they so bear dye crab are closely related to opilio russian snow crab okay uh they they tend to be a bit bigger they're smaller in numbers there's not as many of them out there uh, they're they're a lot harder to find you know, we spent days trying to find the bear dye. Hmm. Took a while. And what's their behavior like once you get them on deck? Uh, bear dye are very angry. <laughs> 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 they like to pinch everything within sight and <laughs> grab the mesh and just 
clutch on for dear life and yeah you can't get them out of the pot sometimes you just have to let them sit there and wait till they're ready <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was my job i'd i'd jump in the pot and basically pull the crab out throw them on the table and w- when you go in that pot like you gotta go fast because the, <laughs> the skipper's up there in the wheelhouse he's watching you and you better act like a pissed off gorilla in a jail cell or else he's going to start yelling at you on the hailer. <laughs> so <laughs> gives you a little incentive to move fast. So you're crawling inside that pot, grabbing all the crabs that are hiding in the corners and stuff like that, and then kicking them out, whichever hole you crawled inside of. Yeah. So basically the the quickest way to do it is you jump in there and you're sitting on your butt in the back of the pot and you're you're grabbing them from each side. And, you know, if it's a full pot, you're going to have probably about 30 crab in there and you just got to get them out there real quick. And you throw them towards the front of the pot where the door is mm-hmm. and the other deckhands are going to come by and grab them and throw them on the table. If they're a small crab, you know, we can detect a small crab, you know, by just looking at it and we'll throw them overboard. But if it's a keeper, you know, we're going to throw it on the table. Okay. And the tables where you're sorting them and, and then sending them down into the life holds. Yeah. So the table is a very crucial part of, you know, fishing. Like you got to have a fast table and it's got to be designed well to make everything smooth. So the table is like this big aluminum platform in the center of the deck and all your crabs get dumped in there when the pot comes up mm-hmm. and you'll have about four deckhands in there sorting all the crab as fast as they can, you know, dumping out keepers and stashing away the little ones. So those go out and you got to have, you know, speed is the game there because when it gets cold up in the Northern Bering Sea, like you got to put those crabs away fast because their legs start breaking off. If it's, if it's like below 20 degrees, their legs are going to start breaking off. And when their legs break, it releases a toxin into the water that kills other crab. Hmm. So you got to make sure that you're putting, you know, whole crab in the tanks. Okay. What were some of your other duties as a greenhorn? Um, let's see. So started out basically just doing bait. You know, I just hang out in the bait corner and chop herring and then, fill up bait bags and I'd be baiting the pots. So when we're setting pots, it's fast. Like Mm -hmm. there's no time to idle. Like everyone's moving at all times. Uh, so the pot gets drug across the deck by the picking winch Mm -hmm. and it gets, you know, guided onto the launcher. So we'll go, I'll go up there and guide it into place and it sits on the launcher there and we open the door, pull out the shot lines, pull out the buoys and that's where I come in and I jump in there and clip my bait in there, jump out, shut the door, tie the door. And then they have me throwing buoys. So I would stand there and hold the buoys and wait for the shot guy to throw the shot lines out. And so the shot lines are basically the, the coils of line mm-hmm. that you know, are going down there. So basically you put the first shot on the top of the pot and the second shot you're holding in your hands and the third one's sitting up by the coiler 
And so when the pot gets launched off and drops into the water, you got a guy throwing one shot over, and then he waits a couple seconds, throws the next shot over, and then throws a third one, and then that's where I throw the buoys. So I got to throw those buoys out there because you don't want to get them chopped off by the prop. Sure. So you got to get those buoys out there ASAP. Okay. And do the buoys have any kind of a beacon or a marker on them? Or are you GPSing every time you throw a pot overboard? Yeah, so the captain's up there marking coordinates on every pot. Yeah, we'll throw the buoys out there. Uh, the first one has the the number of the boat. And the second buoy has a specific number to whatever is in the string. So okay. it'll be like, you know, 25 or whatever. And the next one will be like, 23 you know it's all you know he's recording that so he knows what pot is where and the reason they do that is because they don't want to lose a pot Mm -hmm. so they want to make sure that all their pots are there you know if they take good notes they'll know that okay this pot's here that pot's there they can see where they're at gotcha and how deep of water were you fishing in so we were fishing with three shots by the end of it there. Um, so a shot is basically 33 fathoms, which is you know, one, 198 feet. Yeah. So one fathom is six feet. So if you do the math there, um, yeah. So those shots that, you know, they, they get pretty heavy, honestly, like we use poly and nylon. So the first shot is a nylon composite. It's got, you know, like a, floating composition so the the first line that's on the top wants to be you know floating so your nylon shot is the uppermost shot in the water and it it has a tendency to float a little bit and the bottom two shots are poly okay and so they sink okay and so you want that uh, just to make it easier to haul it up in your block. Okay. So you're fishing in less than 600 feet of water if you've got three shots. Yeah, that's that's basically... 100 fathoms. Yeah. You don't want to go over that because you'd have to pick up a massive wad of line throwing the pot. Yeah, but... And, you know, the crabs will come up. You know, they'll they'll be up at that level. So there's really no need to go deeper than that. Yeah. It's amazing that they can handle that pressure change of coming out of, you know, 500 feet of water. Uh, you know, if you pull a, a fish out of that depth, you know, his stomach's, are, stomach's coming out of his mouth, his eyes are bugged out. Um, it's amazing that the crab can, can handle that kind of pressure change. Yeah, those crab are something else. Like, they're, they're very hardy. So we tend to think of them as like having a shell and, and being fragile but like you're saying that when they're down in the hold you know you can basically walk across the top of them yeah their skeleton is pretty sturdy like they hold up to basically anything um except cold weather like if it gets cold their legs don't stand a chance they'll, they'll break off and what kind of temperatures were you seeing so at the beginning like the first OP trip we had like 25 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't that bad. And then the second trip we went on, 
um, it got pretty fucking cold. Like, it was getting down to, like, 10 degrees, 50-mile-an-hour winds, deck was icing up, bow. So how big of a part of your life was breaking ice? <laughs> breaking ice. That Yeah, that's a whole other topic right there. Uh, so, yeah, the second OP trip we went on, we broke ice for six days in a row just to keep the boat afloat. Because it'll get so top-heavy with all the ice that it won't handle right. Oh, yeah, you'll sink it. Yeah. yeah. If you don't break the ice off, yeah, you're you're done. It's amazing. So what are you breaking it with? So you use a sledgehammer or uh, if you're hitting, like, paint. Like, you, you don't want to hit fresh paint with a sledgehammer. So you got to use a rubber ice mallet. So it's it's basically like a, a splitting mole. And you're swinging it, breaking the ice. But, you know, when it when it gets on the boat there, you know, sometimes it's like this interesting, like, slush combination mm-hmm. where you can't really break it. Like, you hit it, and you hit it, and you keep hitting it, and it just, like, kind of crumbles a little bit but doesn't really break off. And it, it's just like you're going nowhere. And other times, you know, like, if it freezes really fast and you get on it immediately you can hit it and it just breaks off and just it's gone. But yeah, you know, sometimes I was out there like we're just swinging a crescent wrench at firewood here. Like we're not really getting anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I bet. How much sleep are you getting? When we got into a rhythm where we were, you know, going from string to string, we'd typically go about five hours in the rack Mm -hmm. and we get out there. Uh, so when we, when we go to sleep, it's like we're drifting. So the boat's just sitting there, you know, kind of drifting. But if the weather's really bad and there's, you know, 30 foot seas, you got to have someone in the wheelhouse driving. It's called jogging. So you'll be going from waypoint to waypoint, uh, you know, going about three knots back and forth. Cause you got to keep the boat moving. If, if you're drifting in 30 foot seas, you're going to be going all over the place. The boat's going to be turning. It's going to be in the trough, rocking back and forth. The mass is going to be hitting waves. It's it's not a good scenario. So were you driving the boat at all? Is that something that you would take shifts at doing, or were there just a couple of people that would do that? Yeah, so we all were responsible to take a shift during wheelhouse watch. So, you know, the captain would write down our schedule and – they're typically about an hour and a half long wheelhouse watch. And your job is to just sit up there and steer the boat to your waypoint and, you know, watch for other boats, watch for fishing gear. You know, you want to avoid buoys. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Wheelhouse watch is honestly one of the best jobs on the boat. You just sit there and, you know, watch the ocean and make sure you're not going to run into anything. But, but yeah, it was, it was pretty easy going you know, just sitting up there in a chair. What were some of the biggest seas that you saw? On the first Opie trip we went on within like a couple weeks, we got into some pretty bad weather and it was the the biggest storm in the sea I'd ever seen the whole season. You know, like 40 foot seas. 40 feet. Yeah. Waves were just going way up there and, you know, guys were throwing the hook out there 
and the wave would just vanish, you know, go down, and you got to have some accuracy there when you're throwing. Yeah, I bet I bet it's tough to to go back and and try and take another shot at that pot if you don't get it hooked up on the first pass. Yeah, you don't want to miss a pot because you risk chopping off the line. If if the prop goes and hits the line, you're gonna lose a pot. Yeah, and that's eighteen hundred bucks. So yeah, not to mention the crab that's inside it. Yeah, exactly. You can't miss. Like when you're throwing the hook, like you're on your A game. Did you? have that job ever yeah the deckhands they showed me how to throw the hook and i actually was a prodigy for throwing the hook <laughs> that was the skill that you have i was pretty damn good at it nice so are you going to go back is this something that you'll continue doing yeah i i really want to go back um i don't need to be back there until september so we're going to be fishing red king crab that time of year and you know, the quota is a lot less for that as opposed to Opie's or Baird Eye. Well, they're worth a lot more. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, the quotas are just really small because it's a protected fishery. Yeah. The last time that, that I bought king crab, I think it was 250 bucks for a box of it. And uh, it had like eight legs in it or something. But it's terrific. I love it. I love eating it. I, I imagine you're... Your relationship with the eating crab is is going to be different um, for the rest of your life now. Yeah, no, crab is still really good to me, honestly, but it's cod that I don't really care for much anymore because, you know, I, I'm i back there in the bait station making cod bait setups. So, you know, we, we make, like, cod fish tacos every once in a while, but, yeah, honestly, like, all my clothes are just drenched in cod scent. <laughs> yeah. What kind of gear were you wearing? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So before every trip, we'd have a day to go out and get all of our gear at the local fishing shop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've got some pretty nice gear nowadays. Did you go to Big Rays in Kodiak? Um, no, we went to the Marine store in okay. Kodiak. Gotcha. But yeah, they've got everything you want there. Yeah, I'd, I usually buy like three sets of bibs, three sets of rain gear jackets what brand um i really like the guy cotton x trapper okay that's my favorite uh they're just really durable they've got knee pad inserts they last a long time you know one set of bibs can get you through one trip what about boots uh boots everyone wears extra tough Mm. insulated you know you're up there in the northern bering sea you got to have some warm gear is it even possible to stay dry not really yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah no, you, you always inevitably get wet at some point or other but that's why you got multiple sets of rain gear yeah and do you have a way to dry off your your wet stuff so you can rotate through it yeah the upper four peak has got hooks everywhere heaters there's a dryer in there throw all your gear dry it nice but yeah typically you want to have about three sets of rain gear okay what about gloves? Gloves, I typically would buy like three packages of, you know, a dozen gloves. You what, want to have a lot. What kind? Uh, Showa. But what are they? Are they cotton? Um, are they leather, rubber? It's like a cotton glove dipped in rubber. Okay. They're, they're waterproof gloves. That, they're pretty good. I mean, 
it's a thin rubber compound, which is helpful for dexterity, but you know, they, they last for a couple of days. You know, if you're cutting fish though, they last, you know, maybe a day or two. Yeah. yeah you always have extra gloves. Interesting. Well, what are some things that, that surprised you, um, going into this or, or things that, that you thought would be different than how they actually ended up being? Well, we definitely put in a good days of work. The work was harder than what you thought? I mean, yeah, like I, I knew it was going to be hard, but yeah, we're putting in, you know, sometimes 26 hour shifts, mm-hmm. you know, if we got to set all the pots off, um, you know, usually we get to sleep for a while after that, but yeah, I mean, what surprised me a lot is like what the human body is capable of. Like you can push yourself to the limit if you're dedicated and you wake up every morning and you get the job done and you just flow like you go for it and honestly like you can you can withstand about anything that you put your mind to it's all mental yeah is the money worth it oh yeah yeah the if you're a full share deckhand like you can make some serious money in one season um, you know, cause you're, you're out at sea, like you're not spending money at the bar. You're not going out buying groceries. Like everything is on one trajectory. You're, you're buying your food, you're buying the bait and you're fishing. That's nice. all you're doing. Um, yeah, well, it sounds like you had a heck of a good time and I'm glad you learned some more about about what your limits are or what your limits are not. And I think that whether you continue commercial fishing or or move on to some other aspect in life, you'll know what it's like to work hard for 26 straight hours and then sleep for a handful of hours and go again and go again and do it in bad weather in an ocean that can kill you right now. That's it's important to, to do this hard stuff up front so that you can, you know, attack that in a new way later on. Don't you think? Yeah, being on the Bering Sea made me who I am today. So I'll be back in September. Awesome, buddy. Well, hopefully you can uh, you can send home some crab because I'd love to eat some that uh, that was caught by you instead of buying it at Costco. Will do. I'll get you a box of crab. All right, sounds good, man. Well, thanks again, and uh, be safe the next time you're out there on the water catching crab for us to eat. Welcome. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com 
or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.